Um, if you were here uh, Sunday night, uh, Brother Jonathan, as you well know, brought a, a wonderful and helpful message on the importance of seeking God in the quiet, which has to do, obviously, when things are just going okay, seeking God when things are going all right, and seeking God in the crisis when things just aren't going good. And he mentioned how that many times we are crisis Christians, you know, only through when we have a crisis do we only seek God. And he brought up those points and, how, and encouraged us just to seek God no matter what in, his, in, his, in our life. And what I would like to do tonight is I would like to carry on the thought that Brother Jonathan started of seeking God, but in this way. Um, what if the crisis that we are facing lasts long, a longer time than what we might anticipate? Not the average, we might say, you know, it's that mega kind of, of, of trial where it just seems to be go, goes on and on and on. And it seems like that there's extra minutes put, put on that time clock of our crisis. And it just, again, keeps going on and on in life. And what does God expect of me when those kinds of crises come in, my, in our lives? How do we manage those times? Well, in our message tonight, we're going to be focusing in on a passage of Scripture. Uh, you don't need, uh, need to stand just yet, but go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter number 40. And in this particular passage, it gives us instruction in how to wait patiently when going through a crisis. How to wait patiently when going through a crisis. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we, we certainly need your help tonight as we preach from your word. We're grateful for the word of God that we can go to to find guidance and direction and leadership and strength. And, and tonight I ask that you would give that to each of us this evening. No doubt every one of us in life are going to go through crisis. Some may even be going through some type of, type of crisis right now. Some, as it's been said, some will be, are getting ready to go into one and some may be coming out. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to understand how we are to go through those times in life. We know that you orchestrate those, you allow those to happen in life for a purpose and for a reason. You're perfecting us. And God, I pray that you would help us to be able to respond properly the way that you want us to. And so, Father, would you please remove any distraction from our days, things that might be in our minds, things that might keep us from hearing from you this evening, attitudes or things that might be within our own hearts. I pray that you would please help us just to be free and clear and clean. God, that we would not quench your spirit. I pray, God, that you would work within our hearts. Again, help us to be uh, receptive, again, to your precious word. We want to thank you for what you'll do. We do ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all of us have probably spent a lot of our time waiting for things to happen in life. Uh, maybe you have probably done your share of waiting today. Uh, maybe waiting for a phone call. Maybe waiting in traffic. You know, don't you love the summer months of road construction? <laughs> waiting to be seen by the doctor. Waiting for an answer. 
waiting to be served at a restaurant, waiting in a checkout line, waiting to find your soulmate, waiting for your significant other to get ready. Well, yeah, <laughs> waiting for some important news, waiting for a response, waiting for a promotion or waiting on God to answer a need. Can you imagine if you were able to calculate all of the time spent in waiting? I mean, it would add up to several hours of your life. Somebody actually looked this up on the Internet, so it must be true. Uh, th this guy calculated that if you lived to, to be 80 years of age, on average, you will have waited 10,000 hours in your life. That's over a year of your life in waiting. But during those times of waiting, in what way did you wait? In what way did you wait? Because during these times, we have a, a lot of different kinds of emotions and thoughts that maybe flood our hearts and our, our thought processes, some good, some bad. It all depends on the circumstances, but there's always these kinds of things. So how do we wait? In those times of waiting, did you wait anxiously? Did you wait excitedly? Did you wait Eagerly? Did you wait bitterly? Did you wait resentfully? Did you wait fearfully? Did you wait angrily? Or how about the obvious? Did you wait impatiently? In other words, what is your attitude in waiting? You see, the way that we wait is far more important than just waiting. Let me repeat that. The way that we wait is far more important than just waiting. So we find our place here in, in Psalm chapter number 40. And as we stand, we're going to read the first four verses here. And let me just explain, David here has penned this psalm, obviously. This psalm has been a source of encouragement for many believers through the centuries. It is one of those go-to psalms that many Christians would go to. And this psalm is divided into, into two categories or two, two divisions. The first is from verse 1 to verse 4. And this is where David speaks about a past difficult experience that he faced in life and how God helped him and how God delivered him from this. And then after explaining that victory, he then invites others to make God their hope because, because this, God won't let you down. And so he encourages the reader in that way. The second part runs from verse 5 through 17. And here David begins to pray. He prays to the Lord because he is needing some help. If we remember that word from Sunday, from Sunday night, Brother Jonathan, sometimes all we can do is just help, Lord. And David here is praying help in this present situation. And he goes through, David here is going through some heavy trial in life, and he's trying to flesh out 
what he just proclaimed in verse number one, as we'll read here shortly, and, and trying to live it out. And so, again, he begins with the past victory, how God helped him. But then now he has this present victory or present circumstance of, of trial that he's facing in life. So let's just read there, uh, beginning of verse number one. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song, a fresh song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and show trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh, and you will be blessed. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. All right, you may be seated. I want us to notice there in verse number one what the psalmist didn't say. He didn't say, I waited for the Lord. What the psalmist said is that he waited patiently for the Lord. This extra added verb makes all the difference in the world. This is how we are expected to wait. The word patiently means to wait with intensity. Why? Because there are going to be things fighting you, forces that will fight you to get you to be impatient. And so patiently, patiently waiting, again, there is an intensity about it. Now, in the Hebrew, uh, there's a, a the double word here in this regard, and it means this. In waiting, I waited. In waiting, I waited. It means remaining strong with calmness and with composure, without yielding to being agitated, discontent, without murmuring nor passing judgment on God. In a different part of the world, there's a, there's a word, picture, which illustrates waiting patiently. And it, it has the idea to increase the number of strands in your rope to endure or to, to withstand the tension. Again, it's, there's that intensity. What we must understand is that waiting patiently does not mean that there is an absence of any feelings of pain or fear or rejection or despondency. Waiting patiently on God means that when you have pain and when you have fear or rejection or despondency, that these emotions won't overtake you to the point that you stop seeking God. How many times have Christians stopped seeking God because they were overtaken by a pain or by a fear or of rejection or despondency and they just brush it off? There's been many. The, the, this type of proper and godly response doesn't come naturally. It doesn't just happen. The natural response of our flesh is to curl up and sulk. The natural response is to throw in the town. The natural response is to get angry because we aren't getting our way. We must fight 
And this is what's critical. We must fight the unbelief that wants to creep into our heart because of these emotions. Well, this brings us to a, a very important question that we must ask David. David, how in the world did you learn this? What did you do to, to learn how to wait patiently? How did you learn to wait patiently on God during a difficult time in your life? Well, we find a clue in verse number 11, the second part of that letter. And we're going to build on that in just a little bit. But, it's, but the context of this verse here, which is that second part, the prayer to God, has to do with the present crisis that David is experiencing. I mean, he is really going through it. He is feeling as though God's tender mercies are being withheld from him. He just feels that the God's tender mercies, again, are, are withdrawn from him. Now, God has unlimited tender mercies. It's not like he's run out. But for one reason or another, David here is feeling, where is it? Where is the tender mercies, God? What, God, what David might be experiencing and just speculation is that emotionally it might seem that God isn't close to him or that he isn't experiencing God's favor in his life. There's silence. And if that's, if that's not enough about what, what David's experiencing, David also states in verse number 12 that there are innumerable evils that have compassed him about. I mean, there's things that are just around him. Now, he, he doesn't really go into, into the detail of that, but he does also say that he's having trouble with his flesh in that he's saying that there are some sinful tendencies that have taken hold of him to the point that he is ashamed that he can't even look up. David says that they, they are more than the hairs on his head. And he said this, that my heart faileth me. I mean, he was pretty distraught in that at this point. His determination, when he said his heart hath failed, his, it's, it's as though what he was saying is that his determination and his courage and his self-will have abandoned him. That he has no heart, no confidence. All of his resources have run dry. He has nothing left inside of him to rely on except to trust in God, which, by the way, is exactly where God wants him. Through this process, God was revealing to David that he was weak and that he couldn't trust in himself. But even in the state of weakness, David was still waiting patiently on God. He wasn't going to give up on God. He wasn't going to get angry with God. He wasn't going to turn from God. He wasn't going to abandon God. He wasn't going to charge God foolishly. He was waiting patiently on God. There's a sad example of, of one who abandoned God and gave up on God it was Job's wife. We have to remember that Job's wife experienced the very same things that Job did, other than the, his, the health crisis that Job had. But she became angry, bitter, 
resentful in all that had happened. And she said to her husband in, in Job 2.9, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Are you still going to remain whole, Job? Curse God and die. Now, this obviously was the objective of Satan. Remember when Satan and God had that conversation twice, Satan said to the Lord, um, you touch his, he touches um, material wealth and you touch his body and he will curse you to your face. And so this was the objective. And now here his wife, Joe's wife, is in the state of mind that is cause, asking him or telling him for him to curse God. Now, obviously, she may have done that. Join me in this. I, I don't know. But again, this, this word curse, curse God. Now, in, in the Hebrew, the word curse means to take leave or renounce. To renounce God. What, what Job's wife said was, was leave God. Leave him. Abandon him. Turn from him. Give up on him. He's turned from us. And Job responded to her statement by saying, what? Now, this, that statement that his wife had told him didn't communicate or did not commute or uh, compute, that is, in his mind because he knew God's character. How can we curse God? How can we do that to God? That statement that she had made, again, didn't com compute with him. And he says, we can't do that because God is always good. Even when we might think there's evil, God is good. Remember what he said, shall we not, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? At the core, Job knew God was good. And it didn't compute with him when she said to him, curse him. Why? He's good. Again, they were both going through the same scenario, the same situation. But he knew God better than she. He understood his character, God's character better than what she did. Could it be that Job's wife didn't seek God in the quiet? Possibly. And certainly not picking on Job's wife because many of us have been there in some form or fashion. But like Job, David is doing the, the, the same by not charging God foolishly. So in verse number 11, it says, the second part of that verse, it says this, let thy loving kindness and thy truth, which he still believed in, even though whatever he was going through in his life, he still believed in the loving kindness of God and in the truth. And he said, let thy truth and thy loving kindness continually preserve me. Those two 
statements that, that uh, David makes here are the anchors that kept David steady. The first is that David was new without wavering that God loved him. He just knew it. The unwavering love that God had for him. David was settled in this fact. Even though he wasn't feeling it at this time, he still believed it to be true. And that's very important. That's why again, he kept seeking after him. I know you love me, God, even though my, your tender mercies are being withheld from me for whatever reason. God, I know that you still love me and we must do the same. Why is this important to know God's love? I, I like what Jim Berg says. He says that these truths are, are stabilizing truths. They stabilize us. They make us solid. His love is the answer to our insecurity. His love is the answer to our fears. His love is the answer to our purpose in life. His love is the answer to rejection. When those kinds of things come into our life, uh, we might be initially phased by them, but when we understand God's love for us, those things will gradually fade away. Because again, we understand how much that God loves us. Now, the knowledge of his love for you will bring assurance. It will bring peace. It will bring confidence. It will bring, begin to believe that, that it would cause you to understand that how much God loves you and he is not against you. You will begin to believe that God is for you, that God is therefore not against you. I mean, even before, even before you were saved, God was for you because he loves you. Now, he would judge your sin if you died without him. But, but understand this. He was for you because he paid the ultimate price for you. God was for you because he loved you. He came for you. He took your sin for you. He died for you and he resurrected for you. He is for you. You don't need to doubt his acceptance of you when you trusted him as your savior. <laughs> He's been for you. And when you accepted him as your savior, you were born into his family. If you had, if you had godly sorrow over your sin and wanted forgiveness and you placed your trust in Jesus as your savior, knowing the under, and knowing and understanding what he did for you, you're saved according to God's word. And we don't need to doubt what he's done for us. So you need to believe in the fact of God's unwavering love for you. There isn't anything in heaven or earth that can change this fact. God loves you uh, and, and, he, and it, his love for you does not change from day to day. His love is unconditional and it is constant. We obviously don't deserve it. And there are many Christians, and I like what Jim Berg says. He said there are times that many people will try to get God to like them <laughs> by doing things. Look, God, look what I'm doing for you. Trying to earn his favor, trying to earn his love. A friend, there isn't anything you can do. It's, he loves you. And we need to accept that truth. God cannot love you any more or less than he loves you right now. As a matter of fact, God, God the Father 
loves you just as much as he loves his own son. What you need to do is you need to just spend time in scriptures that would motivate you. I, I love Romans chapter number eight, verse 35 through 39. You need to, if, if, you have, if you have trouble accepting God's love and understanding that God loves you and understanding that you are accepted in the beloved, you've got to reprogram your thinking and you need to spend time in those kinds of scriptures where it talks about God's love for you and you need to graze in this scripture, meditate and memorize those truths of God's love. The second anchor that we find here that David was settled in was the truth that, of God's character. Again, he said there, in, and again in verse number 11, he said that thy truth continually preserve me. There are stabilizing truths found in the Bible that encapsulate the unchanging character of God. I mean, his, the, amaz, the amazing things about God he wants to reveal to us if we take the time to spend with him. He wants to teach us those things. How well do we know God? How well do we, do, do we know him? What, what is your perception of God? You see, Satan's goal is to malign the character of God. He's a slanderer and he's going to slander his, his character. And to get you to believe things about God is his objective. And, and he wants you to believe things that aren't true about God. And he is going to lie to you. You ever had somebody ever tell you something about somebody that you don't know that you then believed about whatever, some negative thing? Oh, really? And you believe it. How do we believe it? We don't even know the person. Well, they said it. That doesn't mean it's true. If Satan whispers to us about something about God, and we're not spending time with God, we're going to swallow that lie. We're going to believe that lie. And so we, we need to be careful again and understand that, 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 that Satan is going to do what he can to try to deceive us. Actually, in verse number four, in the latter part of that verse, uh, he says there, um, and such, and you'll be blessed if you, if, if you don't turn aside to lies. Again, there's going to be those lies that Satan is going to get you to try to believe about God, and we just need to refuse those. The better that we know God, we'll, 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 we'll know what that lie is. And again, we've got to just keep in the word and keep seeking God. So what were the truths that David rested in that would empower him to wait patiently on God when facing a present trial. Well, the first truth that the psalmist held to was his understanding of who God is. You see, David addressed uh, God as, as Lord, all capital, Lord. And that was nine times in this particular chapter. And this is a, this is a huge admission. By calling him Lord, he was acknowledging a few things. The first is this, that he was acknowledging that he is the self-existent one. That's what that means. The self-existent one. This refers to the unique attribute of God that he has always existed. <laughs> He's always existed. And, and this is a fascinating attribute of God. I mean, it's really hard for our finite minds to be able to comprehend and grasp this truth about God. There is no one like him, nor will there ever be. 
I mean, he is the only self-existent one. No one is greater than him. And, and, and there is that blessing of the fact that you as his child know him. And better yet, God knows you. And he is the creator of this universe. Also, he, he was acknowledging, David was acknowledging that he was totally dependent upon him. When we see him as Lord, again, as he was calling him Lord, and, and as we see him as Lord, this changes the view of ourselves. All that we have is what has been given to us by God. Whether our abilities or talents or life or gifts or whatever God has ever given to us, those are to be used for the purposes of God, for his kingdom, for his honor and for his glory. And so we submit ourselves to him. And this is what David was acknowledging. Another thing that David was, was acknowledging and by calling him Lord was that his need to yield to him. As he is, he is the Lord. Now there might be a reason that we find in the, the reference of the Messiah in verses 6 through 8. The cross reference is, is in the book of Hebrews. But here it talks about, about the Lord, a messianic uh, prophecy here speaking about, about the Lord. And this speaks of Jesus' willingness to become our sacrifice, to surrender all for us and to do the will of God. As it says in verse number eight, I delight to do thy will, oh my God. I delight to do your will. And that's significant again as we think about this the idea of, of, our, of our God being the Lord, being our master. Now, when Jesus, when this is referring to the Lord in regards to his willingness to do God's will, um, that statement did not come without testing. Remember when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and when he prayed, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He, he wasn't resistant to do the will of the Father. We might think that he was asking, is there another way that man's redemption can be paid for? Well, there isn't. As he, say, as he stated, not my will, but thine be done. And this is to be our attitude as we call him Lord. He is the Lord. He is the self-existent one. And, and again, we can have fellowship with him um, and we need to submit to him. So when David was facing this crisis, he didn't, he didn't have a plan B. He didn't fall back on something else. His only option was God. He, he only, his only hope was in God. He, he really believed that God was the only one that could help him. If we have a plan B in mind, it says that we aren't really trusting the self-existent one. David remained in a place of submission because he knew that God loved him and that God's timing is always perfect. He didn't, come, he didn't become agitated or angered or anxious over what he was dealing with in his life because he submitted himself to God. The second thing that we find that David believed was that if God was faithful in the past, he will be faithful to me, to him, in, in the present circumstance that he was facing. He had no idea when God would come through for him, but he knew with confidence that God would come through. Again, there's those lengthy 
crisis that we face in life, those things that we wonder, is this ever going to end? Uh, God, are you going to work things out? And again, David knew with confidence that God would one day work things out. And so what, what David did is he, as he penned this psalm, he began, began this psalm with remembering what God did in the past, how God had delivered him in the past. And you and I need to do those very, very same things. You and I need to remember those occasions when God met our needs and delivered us, maybe in answer to prayer. Those times where God answered a prayer of yours. Maybe it's been a while, but you can still resort to that. Maybe God meeting your particular need, whatever that may have been. Maybe God giving you guidance when you were needing to know what to do. God providing financially for you. God soothing you uh, in, in your prayer time as, as you were there before him and you came into his presence just anxious of heart and concerned and fearful and you prayed and you brought your request before the Lord and a peace began to come over your spirit. God met you. You need to remember those times. Particularly when you're going through some difficulty and some hardship and some lengthy crisis in life. You see, David kept looking back to remind himself of that truth. Notice the past tense verbs that he used um, after God came to him. Look again in verse number one. Uh, and just, well, I'll just point these out. In verse number one, we, he says, inclined, heard. Verse two, brought, set my feet, established my goings. Verse three, hath. All of these past tense, all these things that God did for him. And he's remembering, God, how you met my need back then. And I believe that you'll meet my need today. I don't know when, I don't know how, but God, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep seeking you. I'm still going to keep trusting you. Now David has a story. He has a story to be able to share. A story of deliverance to remember a story to share with others, a, a story to share with us. We get to, we get to enjoy what, what David experienced and be able to help us. Now, one of the words that David used to describe what God did was inclined. It's a beautiful word. Um, did you know that it, is in, that it is God's inclination to draw near to you? He... He longs, longs to draw near to you. Draw nigh to me and I will, not maybe or might, or I'll think about it. I will draw nigh to you. That is a promise. When the devil whispers into your ear that you're not worthy, that you you're, you're cannot, cannot come into his presence, even after you've confessed your sin and you've come before God in true repentance and you still feel that way, that is a lie. So what, what David believed in his heart was that God was well aware of what was going on in his life. And what inclined means is this. It means to stretch out and to bend down. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God stretches out to you and he comes to you. When you're low and you're down and you're discouraged, 
He reaches out to you, bends down to you. He inclines, he hears your cry. He loves you. He hears your cry. His ears are open to you. They're not closed. And he's moved with compassion. He knows your pain, pain of loneliness, pain of, of singleness, pain of, of, of dealing with maybe things at work. He knows those things. And so we, we look at a scripture, Psalm 62, 8 says this, Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Pour out your heart. Pour out your heart. I mean, it's just taking like, if this cup was filled with, with anxieties and, and doubts and fears, and God is saying, just pour it out. Give it to me. Give it to me. I, I'm your refuge. Don't hold anything back. And the psalmist was convinced that God would be engaged with him and, and, and would hear him. I mean, you think about the, in the New Testament, Jesus said that you are of more value than sparrows. Uh, Luke 12, 17 says this, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Isn't that an, an emotion? Fear not. The anxiety, fear not. Therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. God, he, you know, God hears the cry of, a, of, of birds and provides for them. How much more will he take care of you? He cares for you. And he thinks about you. Verse number five of Psalm 40, you know, he talks about this. He says this, many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done and thy thoughts, which are to usward, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. David believed this. God, he's, David's thinking, God, you think about me. You hear me when I cry. You, you think about me. You know, there's not one millisecond that goes by that God doesn't think about you. See, that doesn't make sense. How, how can God do that? He's God. <laughs> He's God. But what has sometimes we're guilty of, of thinking during a long crisis? He's forgotten me. He doesn't care. Can you see how inappropriate those statements would be? How unbiblical those statements are? We, we have no right to say that God has forgotten you. We have no right to say that God doesn't care about you. We have no right. Because the truth of it is that he does care. He hasn't forgotten you. And yes, the, the crisis may be lengthy. He's still there. Keep seeking him. 
There's one thing about David that you, I'm sure that you see as you read about the life of David, is he always sought God. Now remember, there was a period of time where he didn't. He had sinned, committed adultery, and for what we know, about a year or so, he just was out of fellowship. And what his confession in Psalm 51, return to me the joy of my salvation. He was a wreck. He was a mess. And he got his perspective back. So a question to you is how well do you know God? The reason that we fail at times to trust him and to wait patiently is because we don't know him as well as we think we do. We think we do, but we don't. And what we need to do is we need to make the determination to get to know God better, to really to really spend time in the Word. How much, how much time do we really pour ourselves in? I'm not just saying about reading, but studying and meditating and memorizing, allowing the Word to, to change us. And I know we can all get distracted. We can all get distracted. But we need to make a push to Say, so, you know what, God, I, I be, I've been believing things that, that my enemy, the enemy, has slandered your name, and I've believed. And God, would you help me to begin to get into your word and to really find out who you are? Now, there's a benefit here. As God begins to work in our lives and, and we begin to see victory, you know, he puts a new song, a fresh song. A, you know, we're not... Um, we're not stale, but he puts a fresh song in our hearts of joy and peace. But the benefit is this. Look in verse number three. Again, it says, And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it. See what? My, my praise of God, my devotion to God, my belief in God. They'll see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Wow. You'll make an impression on the lives of others around you who are non-believers by your faith, by how you respond, and you share with others who your God is. And God may allow your life to, to cross, the intersect, to intersect with the life of another, that as they see your life, they, as it says there, that they will trust in the Lord. Wouldn't that be wonderful? They will trust in the Lord and God will use you in that way. So let's determine to get to know God better. Let's keep seeking him that we can learn to wait patiently. All right, as we stand and bow our heads this evening, every eye, head bowed, every eye closed, maybe God is challenge you about some area in your life in regards to something about that's happened and you've stopped seeking him, you have stopped um, wanting to follow, you've sort of given up. Young people sometimes can 
get discouraged about their, their lives and the rejections that they may have. And God loves you. Not just for young people, but even for older people. That can be a, a problem and that can be an issue. And maybe, maybe God has spoken to you. Maybe God has challenged you in some way. Father, we ask that you would bless this invitation. We pray that you would help us, God, to see in our own lives, in our own hearts, those things that maybe have, have kept us from tr truly believing who you are. God, I pray that you'd help us to get into the word and to allow the word to change the way that we think, to change our perception, to get the true perception of you. And that we would not take in the lies of our enemy, the one who wants to malign your character. And we know the better that we know you, the better we'll be able to detect those lies. And so, Father, help us, Lord, again to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Page 503, where he leads me. God has spoken to your heart. It's Brother Aaron. Uh, leads us once you come and do business with God.